the Puritans lived in a time of nearly constant conflict. They and their theology were forged in a, a hot furnace of conflict that makes our political division today look relatively tame. Our Baptist forefather, John Bunyan, one of the greatest preachers of all time, author of what famous book? Pilgrim's Progress, was imprisoned for preaching without British government's approval. For 12 years, he sat in prison while his young wife and four young children lived on the charity of others. Bunyan was in prison because he was doing what he thought was faithful. See, he could have recanted for his teaching. Had he promised to stop preaching, he would have been free to go. But his conscience was bound. He couldn't change his doctrine. He would not keep silent. He was duty-bound to preach the word of God. His prison door, essentially and painfully, was locked from the inside. Choosing prison wasn't easy. He said, The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling of my flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. But he resolved, if nothing will do unless I make of my conscience a continual butchery and slaughter shop, Unless putting out my own eyes, I commit me to the blind to lead me, as I doubt not is desired by some, I have determined, the Almighty God being my help and shield, yet to suffer, if frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on mine eyebrows, rather than thus to violate my faith and principles." Bunyan put faithfulness to God above all else. Like 17th century England, things were escalating in 1st century Jerusalem. From Pentecost onward, God was steadily growing the church. The works that were happening through the apostles were increasing, but opposition also was increasing. Acts 5 shows us the second encounter with the Jewish leaders at the temple. The first was in chapters 3 and 4. What were threats in those chapters become beatings here. The leaders were annoyed then. Now they want to kill the apostles. But through it, we see the apostles' faithfulness. They press on preaching in obedience to God. I wonder who you know who's faithful like that. Someone who's faced trial after trial, but presses on. Not just enduring, but enduring with faithfulness. Trusting God, giving glory to Him, and faithfully serving Him. I think if you just glance around quickly this morning, we'll be reminded of faithful examples sitting near us. But more often than not, especially when we look to ourselves, we'll find those examples to be 
foreign to our own experience. I know I often feel so unfaithful. The smallest trials tempt me to throw my hands up and change course. A short time of suffering makes me question God, His goodness, His faithfulness. But here we see in Acts 5, God give us every reason to be faithful. And the main reason He gives us is His faithful presence. Acts 5 and the miraculous rescue of the apostles from prison shows us that this, the church, is God's people. He's present with them. And he's faithful to them. God's faithful. And he's creating a people who are faithful. God's faithfulness empowers his people's faithfulness. Look down at verse 13 with me. Many signs and wonders. Many signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. God's blessing the apostles with a fruitful ministry. These signs are confirming and even illustrating the gospel that they're preaching. It shows the people that God's with the apostles and their message. And it's teaching the people that they need spiritual healing, spiritual restoration, as much and more than they need physical healing. It's also doing good to the lives of the sick and and hurting around them. So the church is blessing Jerusalem. And so we see a mixed response from the people in Jerusalem. Some are converted. They see the signs, they believe the message, and they join the church. Others in the temple, Luke says, don't dare join them. But they do hold them in high esteem. This makes sense coming right off the story last week we saw of Ananias and Sapphira. If I'm on the fence about joining a group, if I'm not sure if I'm believing what they're saying, I too might keep my distance if me not really being part of them, but kind of trying to join them would end up in my death. So this group, this second group, is still counting the cost. They're wondering if the apostles' teaching and sign are worth believing and joining. Then there's a group that we'll see is openly hostile to the church. Look at verse 17. Look down at verse 17 with me. This group is made up of the high priests and the council, the senate of the people of Israel. So these are the Jewish leaders. These, in their minds, are God's people. These are the physical offspring of Abraham. They run the temple, and they are seeing what the apostles are doing, and they're seeing it as blatant disobedience to what they've told them to do in chapter 4. They told them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So filled with jealousy or zeal, they arrest them. Back in chapter 4, the apostles had prayed for boldness. They trust that God's sovereign, that he's providentially working all things, and they want to keep preaching the gospel, the gospel that has saved them, that's formed the church, that's growing throughout Jerusalem and the whole surrounding area. Look back up at 427. Look at this prayer that the apostles have just prayed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had t- predestined to take place. 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Will God hear their prayers? Are they right? Are they teaching what's true? Is God sovereign over their persecution in the same way that he was sovereign over Jesus' persecution and death? Or will this be the end? Will the apostles be put to death and the movement be over? Well, God answers decisively. He is with them. He'll allow them to continue preaching with boldness. He'll answer their prayers. In fact, he commands them to keep preaching with boldness. Look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. God's come to their aid. He hears his people's cry and comes to their aid. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 3. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Look at verse 2. Moses is out tending a flock. He's been exiled from Egypt. He's had to leave. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a burning bush. And look down in verse 7. The Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then when Moses asks him, well, who should I tell them sent me to say this? Look in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, all capitals, that means I am, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God goes on to perform signs and wonders through Moses, through Aaron, many signs and wonders, just like we see him doing in Acts 5. He miraculously delivers the Israelites from their slavery, and he brings them to the promised land. God didn't forget his people in Egypt. He didn't forget his apostles in prison. And he made sure that It would be known that he is the one who delivers them, doing so in a miraculous way. There could be no mistake, no doubts. No one could say it was a coincidence. No one could say it was the cleverness of the Israelites or the the skill of the apostles to slip out of prison. God delivers them, just like in Daniel, miraculously. And he does so 
because he's faithful. God is faithful. Acts 5, like Exodus, teaches us that God is faithful to his people. To be faithful is to be loyal, trustworthy, consistent. A friend's faithful when that friend sticks with you no matter what. If you've ever moved far away, many of us here in Austin have, I myself have, lived in several places throughout the country, and my most faithful friends are the ones who have stuck with me, who have kept up communication with me over the years, no matter the distance, no matter the time. A faithful spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend is loyal. You don't have to worry about their love drifting to someone else. They're trustworthy when you're away. God is faithful. And he's first faithful to himself, to his own nature, his own will, his own plan. This is good and it's important that he's first faithful to himself. I'm sure many of us know someone who's loyal to a fault. They'll follow a friend into any situation, good or bad. Maybe we know of a girl who's been drawn into a bad lifestyle, being loyal to her boyfriend. The result of this kind of loyalty is that the person changes and changes for the worse. They're not the same person you used to know. But God's faithfulness first means he's unchangeably devoted to himself. He's faithful to his nature. God is his nature. He is good. He is love. He is righteous and just. And he'll never not be. He won't change or stray from his goodness. He won't stray from his goodness even out of love for his people. He'll never do something unrighteousness, even for our sake. He's unchanging. He's faithful to himself. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. That's from James 1.17. Because God's faithful to himself, to his goodness, wisdom, and love, his unchanging faithfulness to his plan and his people is a good thing. We can be assured that because he is faithful to himself, his plan and the outworking of that is good. He'll never not be good. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. The God who never changes, who's never unfaithful, has pledged his faithful, covenant, steadfast love to his people. What he's promised to do, he will do. He won't change his mind. He won't forget about you. He won't be hindered or frustrated in any way. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't need a plan B. He wasn't caught off guard when Adam sinned. He didn't shift strategies when Israel rebelled. He didn't try to make the best out of a bad situation when Christ was hung on the cross. He didn't have to come clean up the mess the apostles made in Acts 5 when they're thrown into prison. 
This is and always has been the plan. For God to glorify himself through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. To glorify himself through the endurance of the church, through persecution. To glorify himself even in bringing you to faith and bringing you safely home through many trials. God's very name, I am. I am who I am. I am the God of your fathers. His name means that he's faithful. Moses and the Israelites were slaves for 400 years. They're tempted to think that God had forgotten them. That he forgot his promises to Abraham. That the God who said he loved them and had promised himself to them had been unfaithful. That he'd gone back on his word. But God reminds them, I'm still the same God. I am who I am. The God I was to Abraham, I'm still that God, and I always will be that God. Centuries might pass, but God's promises come to pass. Centuries might pass, but God's promises always come to pass. The apostles were sitting in prison, and we're tempted to think the same way. Has God forgotten us? Are we doing the right thing? Is he still our God? Has he forgotten his promises to us? When he said the gates of hell will not prevail against us, his church? The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of I am, delivers them and reminds them, I have not forgotten I have not changed. My promises are sure. You're sitting here this morning and are facing all kinds of temptations to doubt the faithfulness of God. From something as small as running out of coffee this morning to traffic troubles on the way here to deep loneliness, feelings of abandonment, struggle with sin, feeling like you have no communion, no close walk with God. All these things tempt us to think that God isn't faithful, that he's changed, that he's gone back on his word to us. He's not really unchangeably good to us. He's not unchangeably good at all, maybe. Time may pass, but God's promises always come to pass. Christian God is faithful. He will never leave nor forsake you. He's faithful in good times. He's faithful in affliction and suffering. He's faithful in your dullness. He's faithful in your forgetfulness. As he was faithful to the apostles, even in their imprisonment and the beating that followed, as he was faithful to Stephen and James, as they become the first martyrs that we'll see in a few weeks, God's faithful to you, Christian. Whether he's planned to rescue your body from destruction or whether he gives your physical body over to death, just as we heard Daniel confess, we know that God has bound himself to you, promised to do good to you, promised you fellowship with him today and forever. 
Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. God is faithful to his nature, to his plan. He's faithful to his people. And he's faithful to us in this way, in Christ. He's faithful to us in the person of Christ. Christ is the faithful Savior and leader that God's given us. Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises throughout the Old Testament. Christ is the content of all the apostles' preaching. We see that in Acts 5 here in verses 30 through 32. Look there with me. Peter and the apostles tell the Jewish leaders that the God of our fathers, you see that in verse 30? The God of our fathers, saying as in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am, the God who is faithful, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and will always be faithful. The God of our fathers has stuck to his plan by sending Christ to die for sin, to give repentance to Israel, to live forever as our ruler over all things. God is faithful, and Christ is the faithful Savior and leader you and I need. The faithfulness in God means that he acts consistently with his nature. Faithfulness for humans means acting consistently, not necessarily with our nature, but with God's nature. Faithfulness isn't being true to yourself, but being true to God. So faithfulness for humans looks like trusting and obeying God. But none of us have lived our lives in perfect obedience, perfect faithfulness to God. None of us have been faithful. God looks down at this room now. He sees our hearts, our thoughts, and our histories. He sees just how unfaithful we've shown ourselves to be over and over and over. We've strayed from the path, from the life, as the angel of the Lord describes it. We've broken God's law. We've ignored his word. We rebel against his will, grumbling and complaining. We've doubted his goodness, his faithfulness, sometimes even his very existence. This unfaithfulness earns us condemnation from our unchangingly just God. But God, faithful to his promise, sent his own son to live the faithful life he requires from his people. The unchanging, faithful, eternal son of God takes on flesh. The book of Hebrews says that in doing so, in taking on flesh, in living a fully human life, he learned obedience through his suffering. The Son takes on flesh and lives the faithful, obedient life we couldn't, even that he couldn't had he not taken on flesh. Over and over, the New Testament describes this man, this God-man, Jesus, as faithful. Revelation 3.14, we sang in All Glory Be to Christ, calls him the Amen, the faithful one, the true witness. 
2 Timothy says that even if we are faithless, He, Jesus, is faithful. Again and again in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is presented as the perfectly faithful one. His unfaithfulness has earned Him the role as the faithful high priest, as the faithful author of our salvation, as the faithful ruler and leader over all things, who is able to save to the uttermost and is seated at the right hand of God. The hope of the apostles, the hope of the early church, the hope of every Christian is not in our faithfulness, but in Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Because he was faithful, because he was faithful even unto suffering and death, he has paid for sin and earned eternal righteous life. God calls all people everywhere to turn from trusting in our faithfulness, to turn from trusting in your own faithfulness, to trust in Christ and His faithfulness, to trust in the faithful one, to put your faith in Him. God is faithful. All who repent and believe in Christ will be saved. This repentance and faith we see in verse 31 is a gift of God. It's given. So Christian, that means that your salvation is sure. It's certain. Because it originated, it's accomplished, and it's given, secured by your faithful, unchanging God. Praise God that your salvation doesn't initiate or finally depend on you, on your changing, wavering faith, let alone your fickle faithfulness. Praise God that from start to finish, your salvation, as the prophet Jonah says, your salvation is of the Lord. You can rest and you can rejoice and you can trust with all confidence and hope in the one who is faithful to save. Faith, we see, is a gift from God, a gift that unites us to Christ, a gift that justifies us. Faithfulness, too, is a gift from God. Faith, the gift from God, always leads to faithfulness, the gift from God. The gift of faith in Christ always leads to our faithfulness. The people God saves he makes faithful. God saves. He delivers us for this very purpose so that we would be faithful. Look at what the angel of the Lord says in Acts 5 in, in verses 19 through 20. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So he saves them. He delivers them in a very physical way and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The angel saves them and gives them a command. Go and speak. He saves them for a purpose, so that they'd obey and go and preach. But, uh, what do the apostles say? Do, do they say, oh, we're saved by faith, we're saved by God's grace? I know he said to go and teach, but I don't need to obey. My obedience isn't saving me. No, that would be absurd of them to do. They say we must obey God rather than men. 
And that's just what they do. So as soon as day breaks, they go to the temple and pick up right where they left off. And again, it leads to their arrest and a beating. Their faithfulness costs them. God saved them physically and then commands them. This is the same pattern we see back in Exodus. We looked at Exodus 3, God's initial calling of Moses. After he's delivered them through signs and wonders, God gives them the law. How does he start the Ten Commandments, though? In Exodus 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So before giving them a single commandment, God reminds them that he delivered them from Egypt. He's saved them so that they might obey. He delivers them, then gives them commands. But of course we know that they don't. Immediately, they build a golden calf. The nation spends hundreds of years rebelling against this God who's delivered them. God commands obedience, and they disobey. God wants faithfulness. They prove to be unfaithful. But now in Acts, we see obedience. We see the apostles delivered, and they obey. So what's changed? What's changed? God gave the Israelites laws or commandments. They were all external, outside them. The physical deliverance from Egypt did nothing to change the faithfulness of the people. They had unfaithful hearts before the Exodus. They had unfaithful hearts in the wilderness after the Exodus. Nothing changed. But in the gospel, God gives us more than just good commands. Good commands like love the Lord your God with all your heart. Good commands like love your neighbor. Good commands like go into all the world, preaching, baptizing, making disciples. In the gospel, God changes us. The law commands. The gospel changes. It gives us new hearts. It gifts us faith so that we're justified and saved. It gifts us faithfulness, a devotion to God a love for him and his law so that we might obey him. If you're here this morning and you are frustrated with your own disobedience, your own unfaithfulness, go to the law and let it show you how, just how disobedient you are. Run to Christ and be changed. He's faithful to change you through the word. He hears your cries in prayer. The good news of the gospel is that all who come to him, as we sang earlier this morning, all who drink of the living water that he freely gives won't stay thirsty, will be satisfied. Come to Christ. This salvation worked in Christ is a work of all three persons of the Trinity. And each person works in us to bring about salvation. Salvation and obedience or faithfulness. 
As one author puts it, the Father commands universal and perfect obedience, Christ fulfills this requirement on behalf of the elect, and the Spirit regenerates the human will to obey God. That means that our faithfulness is grace-powered obedience to God. It's grace-powered obedience that trusts Him with the outcome. The New Testament's full of commands to be obeyed. And the gospel doesn't free us from obedience. The gospel enables and encourages obedience. I think our passage this morning gives us at least five encouragements for obedience. Five encouragements for obedience. First, look at verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God. Must. That one word could also be translated. It is necessary. The necessity of obedience never changes. From Adam to Israel to Peter to us to today, the necessity of obedience to God never changes. But the motive has We now obey out of glad and grateful hearts, not to obtain any kind of righteousness in and of our own. But the need to obey our Creator and Lord remains. It's right. There's something appropriate for those who are created, especially for those who are recreated by God, being remade in the image of His Son, who was perfectly obedient to obey. Second, since it's right, since it is uh, simply what is the right thing to do, what is compelling to do, second, it also leads to our good. Since it's right, it leads to our good. It's what we were made for. It's what we were, are being remade for. It's what we were redeemed for. It's in our best interest to obey. We see this in verse 32. Look at what Peter and the apostles say. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter begins and ends his small defense before the council with obedience. He bookends his speech with obedience. We must obey God. God has given his spirit to those who obey him. Here we see that God rewards obedience. Peter's certainly not saying that God's rewarding obedience with salvation. That's not the gospel. He's also not saying that somehow there are Christians out there who don't have the Spirit because they're disobedient. I think what he's saying is that God rewards grace-empowered obedience with more of the Spirit, with Himself. Obedience grants us closer fellowship with God. And fellowship with a God, with God, is a gift of the Spirit. It's good and right for God to reward obedience. He's a just God. After all, he'll say to some, well done, good and faithful servant. Although we'll say we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. As a gift of grace, he'll give us himself for all eternity. He will give us himself even starting now. He blesses those who obey with close communion, 
intimate fellowship with himself. That means, Christian, if you feel far from God, if you feel like your walk isn't what it should be or isn't what it once was, pray to God to restore that fellowship. It's a gift to give himself through his spirit. So pray to God and repent of any disobedience you're aware of. Confess and turn from it. And God will grant, in his time, restored relationship. Third, the third encouragement for obedience we see is in the same verse, in 32 and into 33, we see that obedience shows us and others who are God's people. God gives his spirit to those who obey. And those who obey are those who God has saved. So Peter and the apostle, the apostles who have received a visible outpouring of the Spirit, are telling the Jewish leaders that their disobedience is showing everyone that they're not God's people. God's with his people by his Spirit. He's not with you, high priest, who's dressed the part, but whose actions show that you're disobedient. Obedience, faithfulness, shows us who are God's people. One confession puts it this way, talking about obedience and good works. Good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Through good works, believers express their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, build up their brothers and sisters, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of opponents, and glorify God. Believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the outcome eternal life. Obedience shows who are God's people. That means people living in open disobedience rather than gnashing their teeth and being enraged like the Jewish leadership, ought to repent from disobedience. Pursue obedience to God in Christ by His gospel grace. Fourth, the faithful obedience of believers is how God accomplishes His plans in the world. The faithful obedience of believers is how God accomplishes His plans in the world. Look at verses 38 and 39. Look down at verses 38 and 39 with me. Gamaliel saves the apostles. But he saves them with bad theology. 38 and 39. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan is, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Seems faithful on the surface. But what's Gamaliel telling the other leaders to do? He's saying, let them go and see what happens. Take no action because God's will will be done. This is a wrong, unbiblical, fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. It says... God wants to get something done, he'll do it. He doesn't need me. It's true that God is sovereign. 
He's sovereign over every square inch of the universe, as John was saying earlier this morning. Every moment of history, as we've been seeing throughout Acts, is under God's sovereign plan and rule. It's true that God will accomplish all his purposes. But God accomplishes his sovereign purposes through the faithfulness of men and women. So don't use God's sovereignty as an excuse for inaction. How will God save your children? Through your faithfulness, parents, to preach the gospel to them. How will God comfort a suffering member here? Through your faithfulness to walk beside her and bear her burdens. How will God grow our church in maturity, love, and unity? Through your faithfulness to intentionally meet together and do spiritual good to one another. It's through you. God sovereignly working through you to accomplish His purposes in His world among His people. So obey your Lord. Conform your will to His. Obey all the commands He's given you in Scripture. And do what you were made and remade to do. What a privilege it is to be conformed to God's will, brought along under His good rule and providence. The fifth and final encouragement for obedience is found in the last verses in verses 40 through 42. And the encouragement is this. Obedience will lead to suffering. Look at verse 40. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The fifth and final encouragement is that obedience, faithfulness will lead to suffering. That sounds like a bit of a strange encouragement. But we have to know beforehand that faithfulness will lead to suffering and that that suffering has good results, even good intentions in God's will. Suffering as a result of obedience, that means, doesn't mean you've necessarily made a bad decision. It doesn't mean that God's punishing you. Obedience often leads to our suffering and affliction. Faithfulness often means what's doing, doing what's hard, what's contrary to our flesh, what our natural man screams at us not to do. But suffering in obedience and suffering because of obedience grows our love and dependence on God. Suffering shapes us. It forces us to cry out to God who's faithful to hear us and sustain us. Our faithful God is faithful as he brings us suffering and affliction. Our suffering grants us a closer identification with our Lord, who himself suffered. Philippians 1 refers to suffering with Christ as a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Suffering isn't something that's shameful, to be avoided at all costs. 
the apostles see it here as an honor. It's because in the gospel, suffering leads to glory. In Christ, our suffering for his name turns the volume up on the message we proclaim. Suffering is like a megaphone that loudly shouts and tells the world how worthy Christ is of our whole lives, even of our suffering. Are you willing to obey God no matter the cost? Do you trust God's loving rule over your life? Do you trust Him with the results of your actions? God's will for you is holiness. It's faithfulness, obedience, godliness. He's revealed this in His Word, in the Apostles' teaching, what they can't be stopped from proclaiming, what we have recorded in Scripture. God's will has been given to us. We're called now to know it and to obey it. We're called to make decisions based more on faithfulness, what we know to be faithful, than on results that we can't yet see. What we do should be more influenced by faithfulness to God's commands and instructions than on potential outcomes. One place that summarizes God's commands and instructions for us is our church covenant, written on the front cover of our member directory. Our church covenant that we recite at every members meeting. If you read through that, next time we go through that, not this evening, but next week we'll read through it together as a church, Notice that it's not a contract. It's not guaranteeing any results, any fruit, any goods and services in return for our faithfulness to it. It's not saying, we'll do this, we agree to do these things until we hit a certain number of members or plan a certain number of churches. It's not promising peace in your marriage or that you'll find a spouse, give you more money or happiness in your job. All it says is that we agree to live in faithfulness to God's commands. We're called to faithfulness. And we trust that God will be faithful to care for his people. He who's supplied the faithful Savior, he who's given us his spirit, will bear fruit in us. The results might not look what our feeble minds want or expect, but God will bear fruit in his people fruit that glorifies him and lasts for eternity. Like John Bunyan, we all have an open door. We can disobey and walk free from under the yoke of Christ and enjoy all the pleasures of the world. But we know that we'll find ourselves walking into a much darker dungeon if we do. God's compelling us I pray he's compelling you this morning to prize faithfulness. Hold fast to Christ. Endure suffering obediently by his grace. And enjoy fellowship with him and all who suffer with him now and forever. Let's pray. Great is your faithfulness, Father. 
Great is the faithful Savior you've given us in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, that we would be sure and sound in our understanding of your grace in Christ, freely justifying us apart from any works that we do. And we pray by your Spirit that you would work mightily in us, that we would abound in good works, that we would not grow weary of doing good, that we would be faithful to all you call us to do. Lord, bless us through one another. Through our faithfulness to you and your people, to care for and disciple, to love and to serve one another, that you might be glorified in us and us in you according to your grace and grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen.